Let me open us up in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the way that you provide for us. You give us the rain uh, when we need it uh, and not when we think we might. <laughs> uh, you, you go before us. You, you guide us. You've given us your, your word in the scriptures. And you've given us your Holy Spirit to illumine our path through them. Um, and you've given us the body of Christ, the church, where iron can sharpen iron um, and one man can sharpen another, where we can go for counsel and advice and to seek your face together in prayer. And so we're going to do that this morning. We're uh, coming before you now asking that you would give us wisdom uh, as we want to learn better how to make decisions that are in keeping with your will, that are aligned with your word, and that would be pleasing to you. We have but a moment under the sun, and we want to steward all of it well. So please help us now as we go through this material, and help us to leave from here and worship you uh, in spirit and truth in the hour that comes. Uh, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay. So... Um, Over the last seven classes together, we've explored the topic of vocation or calling from a number or from um, calling from God through a number of different lenses. We looked at the philosophy behind the context, the concept and the content of calling. And we examined four different spheres or domains of life where our various callings, stations, roles and duties in service of Christ take place. We looked at the clear commands of God in Scripture about our responsibilities within our work, within our home, uh, within the church, and within society at large. And we also discussed a five-part ethical framework uh, for determining whether a given course of action was wise and morally right. And those five questions, if you remember, for ethical assessment are, by what standard, to what end, at what cost, through what means, and from what motive. We learned that God loves his people through his people, that he employs means to accomplish his good ends, that he desires for us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And we saw how it's not just our actions that matter, but the motivations of our heart behind them as well. The task before us this week uh, and next is to further unpack what the Bible teaches with regard to how we make decisions as Christians. We all want to please God. We all want to serve our Redeemer. We all want to return to Christ, the great love he's shown to us. But the question is, how exactly do we do that in each situation that you and I face individually in our lives? Because there are a myriad and there are many factors that come about. So how do we do that? How do we understand God's particular desires for us in whatever circumstance we might find ourselves in? How do we make wise decisions about stewarding our time and our talent and our treasures on behalf of the Lord? All that we have is His, even our very lives, because we're bought with a price and we're not our own. So how do we discover His marching orders for us so that we can dutifully obey? Uh, I want you to know that there are are, in fact, answers to those questions. And there is a way taught in Scripture for us to know how to please God 
through offering our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. There are also numerous ways in which we're impacted by the world around us, our own broken, sinful flesh, and even the devil who likes to deceive, um, which muddy the waters of our understanding and can lead us astray from a faithful path of obedience to Christ. So today, we're going to focus on tearing down some of those false constructs, which we all have in some way built up in our minds, so that next week we can assemble uh, from the text of God's own word a proper model for making decisions. Uh, The material that we'll go through this week and and next largely uh, is put out by Stand to Reason Ministries. It's entitled Decision Making in the Will of God uh, by Greg Kokel. 20 years ago or so, he put together uh, this on the heels of some of his own study as well as guidance from some other resources, three of which you might want to look at at some point on your own. In the 80s, I believe it was, Dr. Gary Friesen uh, did a doctoral thesis on uh, decision-making in the will of God, this biblical alternative to the, he calls it the traditional view, but it just means the, the view of about the last 100 years or so. It's a tome. It's readable, but it's like 500 pages. That's something you can get if you'd like. Um, J.I. Packer, many of you guys know, he's got a book called uh, Hot Tub Religion and Other Thoughts on Christian Living in the Material World. Pulls from that as well. And then uh, John MacArthur has a book called Found, God's Will, Finding the Direction and Purpose God Wants for Your Life. So those are some of the resources that Kokel uses along with Scripture that's packed into this. I'll try to just know that almost everything, unless I say it otherwise, is, is um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling from him. I don't want to take credit for someone else's stuff. So we'll dig in because it's a, it's a good little clip to go through. Um, introduction. There is a potential uh, for the following material to be upsetting to you. I don't know all of your backgrounds. Um, we kind of maybe asked around a little bit about some of your denominational uh, history And so some of you will have more resonance with what we go over today than others. Some of you, um, some of you may have been raised on this, this biblical model and all this is obvious. I don't know, but the issues that we're going to look at are, if not in your own life, pervasive in the world around us. They'll be at your kid's school. They'll be, I mean, around the block, in your neighborhood, in your family, at Christmas and Thanksgiving when you get together, you'll hear it, you'll even hear it in your own head from time to time. Some of the lingo that gets thrown out there on how to know God's will and make decisions around it that has almost zero rooting in Scripture itself. Sometimes they're biblical words that have almost a direct, you know, um, directly opposite con- uh, meaning from what's found in the scripture that we employ for various reasons. Oftentimes, I think, frankly, just as a safety blanket as we're making decisions. We want to feel a little less nebulous, a little more comfortable, and so we throw around, you know, God told me to do those kind of things um, because it's a comfort. So, um, so recognize that some of this might be upsetting Um, We're going to question much of what's commonly understood about the leading of the Holy Spirit. This may be frustrating. You may feel as though God is somehow being taken away from you. You may even be a little depressed at first. Um, For others, this may make you angry. You may feel as though this teaching is quenching the Spirit, or I'm putting God in a box. Um, You may even challenge its orthodoxy or my my own. 
This is a controversial issue today, but uh, it's not one really that's been that controversial throughout the Christian church. Like I said, it's around 100 to 150 years old or so, based off Packer and Friesen's estimates. Uh, once we do go through all the material, though, both this week and next, my hope is that you will be thankful. Um, because after careful examination of the scriptures and a close look at the way the apostles made choices, you're going to see decision-making in a different light, perhaps, than you have in the past. Not in a new, you know, fancy revelation, but in the light of what um, Christians before us for hundreds and even thousands of years have relied upon. Uh, this material is designed to give you the tools that you need to make sound choices, and many of you will likely experience a deeper sense of relief, I hope, and freedom in decision-making that you haven't maybe known before. There is costly confusion around this topic. Uh, there may not be a more important topic for practical day-to-day -day Christian living than making decisions based on the will of God, and there may not be any issue uh, filled with more confusion and misinformation, mistaken proof texts, and even downright superstition than knowing or discerning God's will. Uh, Kokel says, few things are as misunderstood as the role of the Holy Spirit in making decisions. And uh, J.I. Packer wrote that wrong ideas about God's guidance lead to wrong conclusions about the right thing to do, which can be a costly misunderstanding. So summarizing, uh, summarizing what lies ahead as we jump in, uh, this is what we hope to do, four things. Carefully analyze the text that the conventional wisdom um, speaks to the conventional wisdom on the issue, construct a biblical model of decision making, examine actual cases in the New Testament where this model is employed, and then make some specific applications uh, and deal with any questions we might have. So the core question is, um, how is God involved in the process of decision making? You think about some of the decisions that you guys make. Maybe you've made, you know, uh, who to marry big decision, um, whether or not to have kids, how many to have, what school to go to, what job to take, where to live, how to deal with a, an ailing parent, um, how to cope with the loss of a child, um, what do you do with the neighbor who's got it in for you, <laughs> myriad decisions that we make all the time. How to invest your assets, you know, like uh, what, do you, what do you do with your time? Do you aim at retirement? If so, to what end? Um, if you're going to work forever, how are you going to do that? What are you going to do? There's just a lot of decisions. We, it can be overwhelming, candidly, right? The paralysis of analysis. Um, so the prevailing view on how God is involved in our process of decision-making goes like this. God has an individual blueprint, a precise, perfect plan for each of our lives. And we call this his will for our life. Uh, we then attempt to find out what his decisions are for us in that plan so that we can then make our decisions in accordance with his, and we call that finding God's will. We do that by using certain techniques to get information from God before we can move forward in any given decision or action. And this, we believe, allows us to function optimally in the Christian life. That's the prevailing view. That's what fish don't know they're wet. That's what we eat and breathe. That's what's going on in churches all around Fayette and Coweta County this morning. 
Some of the associated Christian lingo might be, I feel led to do this or that. I think God's telling me to do this or that. God wants me to do this thing or go this place. I feel God is calling me in this direction. or I believe it's God's will that I might do so and so. I've received lots of confirmation about it. I have a peace about it. So I know it's right. When you hear these statements, you may ask yourself the question, how exactly did they know those things? Implied in that type of language is a kind of sixth sense, some Gnostic special knowledge that only the so-called spiritually mature are able to tune into and hear this voice of God. And we all want that if it exists. This view and language spawns slogans like, I want to be in the center of God's will. I want God's perfect will, not his permissive will. The good, like my desires, is always the enemy of the best, which is God's desires. And this creates confusion, frustration, anxiety, and even fear that we're not somehow tuned in to God and we're going to make a mistake and we're going to mess up and everything's going to be broken from now on. We're going to miss out. Fear missing out. I've got a five and a half year old right now. She is, life is panic when you, oh, Dad, you're leaving. I didn't get to say goodbye. And just, just panic, right? But I turned 40 this year and I still have fear of missing out. Good house comes on the market. Oh, wait, what should we, we should, ah, oh, yeah. Those kind of things. Um, John MacArthur describes various views of God's will. He talks about it in four different ways. He says God's will to some is a trauma, some dramatic event that powerfully conveys God's hints, what you need to to read between the lines to understand. God's will might be for some scary. People think that God's going to take a robust athlete, break his legs, and make him play the flute for the rest of his life because that's what's going to be aligned with with God. Uh, God's will for some is a crisis. Read your insurance forms. Acts of God, earthquake, tornado, flood. And for many, God's will is somehow lost. People say things like, I'm searching for God's will. I've got to go find it. All of this is based on one very important assumption that the blueprint or the roadmap of God actually exists. That God made the decision which we must discover in order then to make ours. People act as though, uh, MacArthur says, as though God is some cosmic Easter bunny, dropping little hints here and there. You know, you're getting warmer. Um, And this inevitably creates frustration. You ask yourself, well, am I reading the hints correctly? I made mistakes in the past. How do I, how do I know? This can lead us to be very superstitious. I think God is calling me, but maybe that's just my own selfish desire. Or uh, the door's closed. So, but is it really closed, or is it just a jar, and I'm supposed to try to push my way through? Is it an obstacle to faith, some roadblock from Satan that I'm supposed to overcome if I'm going to be faithful, or is it a divine red light that I should heed? Let's bind the devil and claim the victory and barge through. Or maybe we're just not listening to God correctly. Or maybe it's not a closed door, but an open door. Must be a sign from God, right? That's the one you're supposed to go through. Or maybe it's just Satan's second best, tempting you away from God's perfect will. 
Indeed, some Christian teachers on this issue even warn you not to do anything unless you've heard from God about the decision. Great teachers, Henry Blackaby. You're going to experience God, you need to hear from him. I learned a lot from him, but we need to be careful and test everything and cling only to that which is good. Kokel says he determined to find God's will and did so by looking in the most obvious place, his word. It seems obvious, but, but think about it. How often is God's word ignored in the decisions that you and I make? Before you married your spouse, what of the Bible factored into that? Before you chose what school to go to and what course to study, did you have a list of wisdom from the word pointing you in that direction of the job you took versus another? Or where you're going to live? It just, I grew up here, so I'm going to stay here. That's okay. Or I chose this place because because it was near a job that could make a lot of money for me or because it was going to somehow make me more like Christ if I landed there and served in a certain way or was changed in a certain way. I'm surprised when I honestly assess my own life at how uh, seldom or inadequately, at least, the Bible gets cracked open when hard times come and decisions are before me. I arrogantly think I'm smart enough to just sort it out. Just close off the door, go in my own room, go for a drive, think, 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 and somehow I'll summon the wisdom from within me. Silly. All spiritual disciplines that are important and that are essential for productive Christian living are taught clearly in the scriptures. They're not hidden between the lines. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we want to look at what the Bible teaches in regards to these signposts or these signs that people like to look for, that we all like to look for. We're going to explore today five things that the Bible does not teach. It does not teach that we get guidance from feeling led, from having a peace about it, from open doors, from fleeces, or from confirmations. Number one, the Bible does not teach that we get guidance from feeling. I felt led. This teaching is simply not biblical. Kokel says there is not a single instance in Scripture that asserts this. Maybe he's right. Um, I don't have a Rolodex of Scripture in my mind, but we're going to roll with this, see what he says. Uh, The still small voice is often employed in this feeling led. And the still small voice, if you remember, of Elijah um, was a still small voice. Not an urge or a nudge or a feeling in the the belly. Um, 1 Kings 19.13 And it came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, 
a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And they went on to have a conversation. Note that in verse 9, the text says the word of the Lord came to him. It was from God. And in verse 13, it specifies a voice, not a feeling or an inner sense. But this makes sense because Elijah was what? He was a prophet. You and I are not those. Not in the same sense he was, at least. Misreading this text is an example of using a biblical term in a non-biblical way. What does the Bible mean by the phrase, led by the Spirit? It certainly uses that phrase. Um, in Romans 8, 12 through 14, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Being led by the Spirit in this passage is not referring to individual guidance, but rather empowerment to live holy lives. It refers to the Holy Spirit's work of convicting us of sin and leading us uh, into a Christian life, into righteous living. Uh, Packer notes, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit in personal decision-making? Well, that phrase found in Romans 8.14 and Galatians 5.18 speaks of resisting sinful impulses, not of making decisions. Galatians 5.16-21, uh, since he brought, brought it up. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Clearly, led by the Spirit in verse 18 has to do with righteous conduct and not incidental decision-making. This is why someone who's led in the Spirit, or by the Spirit in Paul's sense, is not under the law. They're already fulfilling the law by their righteous conduct. It would make, uh, wouldn't make much sense for Paul to be saying, if you get your directions directly from God, you don't have to keep the commandments. He's not going to contradict himself. God is one. Jerry Bridges uh, sums up the biblical notion of this in his book, The Practical, or excuse me, The Practice of Godliness. He says, The Apostle Paul uh, describes Christians as people who are led by the Holy Spirit in Romans and Galatians. Both of these passages refer to his leading, not in some decision we must make, but in the conduct and character issues of our lives. Uh, if we're led by the Spirit, we will put to death the misdeeds of the body and we will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The Holy Spirit leads us objectively through the general teaching of his word. This is where we learn his will for all Christians. But the Holy Spirit also leads us subjectively as he impresses certain scriptures on our minds, applying them to specific situations in our lives. This is his way of showing us what he wants us to give attention to at a particular time. This is the way he leads us to establish a priority of applications. Um, Jesus was also led in, in the Gospels. It's used a few times there as well. Uh, Matthew 4.1, Mark 1.12, and then Luke 4.1. Uh, Jesus was also led or impelled by the Spirit into the wilderness, remember? Um, to be tempted. First, what, what was happening here 
um, whatever it was that was happening here, a good case can be made that Jesus' experience were unique since he's the incarnate Son of God and you and I are not. So we have to be careful when we're saying, well, Jesus did this. He did a lot of things that you and I will never do and are never called to do. We're supposed to be made like him in character, but uh, I can't be your redeemer. <laughs> I don't have the shoes big enough. So, um, This is the only mention of such an occurrence anywhere in the New Testament. There is no teaching or even suggestion that we should follow this pattern. Second, this does not seem to be an internal prompting of the sort that Christians describe when they use the concept of being led by the Spirit. The text seems to indicate that the, the Spirit actually took Jesus to the wilderness rather than led him, in the sense of the word that's used. And the words ago and anago are the same used to describe Satan taking Jesus to different locations during the temptation. Um, using the felt-led theology creates all kinds of problems in application. Think about that for a minute. It often makes God look capricious, changing his mind from moment to moment. Uh, as the believer is led in different directions, you probably at least been around friends who've said, oh, Jesus, God, he's leading me to do to date this gal. And then three months later, eh, he changed his mind. Or, you know, he's leading me to go to this school and study this whatever, but I, I didn't get in. <laughs> you know, um, I think Spurgeon once said that he, he had a guy come to him and say, yeah, well, God, God was telling me that I'm going to be preaching at the Metropolitan uh, pulpit next week. And he's like, that's funny because he didn't tell me, you know. Um, we use that a lot. Um, Christians do extreme, bizarre things led on by their feelings of what God wants, making their lives very unstable. It gives divine authority. This is scary. It gives divine authority to impulses or thoughts that drift through our minds. To say God is telling me gives your feelings authority that the Bible does not justify. I mean, the Protestant Reformation was all about separating from those who believed that the traditions of men were on par with the authority of Scripture. And yet, we as Protestants place our own subjective feelings in that same boat when we say, well, God's telling me to do this. God called me to do this. You can't question it because it's as true as his word. <clears throat> it virtually ends debate. And... Here's the dangerous thing. It shields you from sound counsel. Who's going to tell you otherwise? I go to the pastor. God's telling me X, Y, or Z. What are you going to say? <clears throat> yeah. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. Show me the chapter and verse. Yeah. Um, you can't argue with a person if God supposedly gave the command. Trusting inner feelings is not biblical. It's confusing at best and dangerous at worst. The world says that you should follow your heart. But God says through the prophet Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So that was number one. Uh, the Bible does not teach that we get guidance from feeling led. I felt led. The next are a little bit faster. The Bible does not teach that we get guidance from inner peace. Just pray and you see, see if you feel a peace about it. Mary Beth, you want to change your job? Just pray and see if you feel a peace about it. <clears throat> Colossians 3.15 says, and let the peace, this is the proof text that almost everybody who uses this will go to if you read why they, they use this. Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of Christ 
rule in your hearts. The Greek word for rule there means to act as an arbiter or a judge. So the, the thinking is, all right, I'm going to let peace be the judge as to whether or not I do a given thing. Peace will rule in my heart. And the biblical concept of heart is the seat of all our volition, all of our emotion, all of our thinking and feeling. Okay. If I have peace, that's going to tell me which way I should go, what I should do. Peace to the, in the conventional mind says that uh, peace in a decision equals green light from God and, and no peace means red light. Don't do it. But this is a classic example of how knowledge of the Greek can be dangerous if context is not taken into consideration. Another thing, note that the word, we'll, we'll talk about the context. Note that the word peace can have two different meanings. It could be a sense of inner harmony or emotional equanimity and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus from Paul's letter to the Philippians. But it could also mean a lack of conflict between two parties that were formerly at odds. So two countries are at peace and not war. This same sense is used in Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not mad at me anymore because Jesus soaked up all of his mad at the sins that I had done. He took him on himself. So I'm at peace with God now. Me, a sinner. At peace with the Holy God. How would we know which sense of peace is in view here? The context is going to help us. It matters. Here's the verse in context from 12 to 15. And so, those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, which is the perfect bond of unity... And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Is that your, in the your hearts, singular or plural? It's talking about not you in your individual closet making a decision for your individual life, but how you're going to live in the midst of the body. Peace here means harmony, a lack of conflict between people in the church based on love and forgiveness. In other words, let your commitment to interpersonal harmony among the members of the church be the arbiter or judge or ruling principle. There's no hint that this refers to an inner feeling of some divine stamp of approval on some individual decision that we might make. Paul is not talking about a subjective guideline, but an objective one. Right? You can tell when there's peace in a church and when there's not. Ever walk into one and feel it? You can see it. And the words that are said, the facial expressions, how people sit and interact. It ebbs and flows. One church can have seasons of peace and non. Maybe you've experienced that. There's an outside possibility that Paul is referring to inner peace, but only as it results from living in harmony with other Christians. So be honest with the potential there for the text. But Paul is telling the Colossians that when dealing with each other, they should pursue whatever promotes peace. And whether that's internal or external peace really makes no difference to the main point. In neither case is Paul giving a guideline to judge various decisions in our lives. That use is just foreign to the text. But that's what's used all the time. I had a piece about it. You ever talk to a friend? I'm old enough now where a number of the people that I once knew who were happily married are now not happily married. Um, but they had a piece about it. They knew it was all right to abandon someone that they covenanted with, that God had joined together. 
They, they felt a, they felt a piece about it. Applications or uh, applicational problems of this view are are many. Um, in major decisions, some emotional distress and consternation is normal. If you're not a little bit nervous, maybe you don't realize the weight of certain decisions that you're making. Maybe you need to slow down, get a little more counsel, and not be so hurried or hasty. Sometimes doing the right thing is unsettling. Think about Moses in Egypt. Was he peachy keen about going to talk to Pharaoh? No. Or, the great example, Jesus in Gethsemane. So much peace that he sweat blood. Even, even rightly confronting a brother or sister in their sin, this is the biblical path toward the end of peace which Paul teaches, but it's almost always discomforting. It's never fun to confront someone. Even God's discipline functions that way. Hebrews 12, 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. You don't get a feeling of peace and then walk through the door. That's not walking by faith. That's walking by feelings. Walk by faith, not by sight. We do what God calls us to do, and as we do that, as we live and act righteously, as we pray before Him and turn our concerns over to him, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Sometimes you do have a peace, uh, you know, you feel right about doing something that's actually wrong. I just mentioned one. Have you ever had a peace about dating a non-Christian? Ever had someone get, like I mentioned, a divorce and say, I, have to, I had a peace about it. Remember that the Mormons have a peace about the cultic Book of Mormon. So, the Bible does not teach that we are led by feelings. I had a piece about it. Number three, the Bible does not teach that we get guidance from open and closed doors. Open and closed doors are referenced in Scripture. They do exist as opportunities. But are we to take them as divine message that you've you got to do this because this opportunity came, came about? I don't know about you, but most of the problems I've ever had, the, the, the hard questions I've ever wrestled with, were not... Should I murder my neighbor or should I, you know, worship the true God? It's not, it's six in one hand, half a dozen in the other. They're both morally right in terms of scripture. They both make sense. I could do both of them. Now I got to make a decision. <clears throat> so opportunities come about, but which ones do you take? Paul walks through some open doors in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 through 9. He says, but I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So he's going to stay there and serve. But Paul ignored other open doors. 2 Corinthians 2, 12-13. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, not finding Timothy, or excuse me, Titus, my brother. But taking leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Uh, Acts 16, 26-28. This is a in-your-face door. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, literally opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because that was his responsibility, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Wait, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. The jailer saw God's act of grace 
on behalf of Paul and Paul's act of love on behalf of the jailer. And he asked, what must I do to be saved? Paul had an open door. He absolutely could have left. But knowing Paul, he'd been in jail for a while. This jailer had been next to him. So they'd been chatting. Paul was loving his neighbor in the providential opportunity that he had. And the jailer didn't ask, why didn't you leave? He asked, how can I be saved? Why would he ask Paul that? Because he somehow thought Paul must have known that. So the conclusion on this part, Paul did not read every miraculous divine opportunity, uh, every, um, even miraculous divine opportunities as if they were divine directives. Just because it's there doesn't mean you have to take it. Paul viewed open doors, even physically open prison doors, simply as opportunities that could be acted on or ignored depending on other factors. All right, hustling on here. That's number three. Number four, the Bible does not teach us to seek guidance from fleeces or providential signs. Remember Gideon's fleece in Judges 6 and 7? Um, That was not normal guidance for us. It was a story. It was an experience. It's in Scripture, but it's not a roadmap for you or me to follow. But let's look at it. It confirmed direction which was already supernaturally given by an angel in Judges 6.21. So this wasn't Gideon looking for, I'm not really sure what to do. God had said, do this. Here's your directive. But he was, he didn't want to. He was nervous. He was scared. So he wanted comfort in finding this additional sign from the Lord. The fleece itself was a supernatural sign. Remember, keep the fleece dry and everything else wet. Okay, he did that. Here you go. Here's my grace. You know, my kindness to you, Gideon. Ah, all right, now make this wet and everything else dry. Okay. But it still didn't give him what he needed. All right, so he snuck down and heard them say, oh, the, the Midianites that had the dream of the barley or whatever it was rolling down the field. And Okay, now I get it. Even they knew that. So now, now, now he'll go. <clears throat> um, we use lame fleeces. Kogel uh, says, let her answer on the third ring, and I'll know she's the one. You know? um, but fleeces have another problem. They presume that God is obliged to answer, as if you get to control him. Do this, God. Tell me this way, the way I'm asking for it. But he's not obliged to you like that. If you really want to ask for a legitimate fleece, this is Kogel says, then ask for a supernatural sign in both directions. If she's the one, levitate the couch. If she's not the one, levitate the TV. And then if nothing floats off the floor, you know that God decided not to answer you because he doesn't have to that way. Gideon's fleece was an expression of doubt and disbelief, an inappropriate request of Gideon's that God was gracious enough to put up with. But what about if these desires or feelings or ideas are not from you, Lord? You, You might have heard this or you may have said it. If this isn't from you, take it away. Or uh, stop me if you really don't want me to do this, Lord. This is an example of a request for a circumstantial sign. And placing this kind of ultimatum before the Lord is testing God and is wrong. Jesus said you should not put the Lord your God to the test. Luke 4, 12. There are scattered examples of providential signs used in the Bible. Think about Abraham's servant selecting a wife for Isaac in Genesis 24. 
But there's no indication that this is a standard way of making decisions. Uh, the fact is, this is just not taught to us in the New Testament as a proper method of making decisions. Um, and that's a critical point. It's not taught as a method for us to make decisions. The only New Testament example um, that has some similarity is the drawing of lots to fill the apostolic vacancy left by Judas in Acts. But that's not really a common occurrence. And um, just an aside here, the concept of casting lots or our version of drawing straws is mentioned in scriptures, even mentioned in Proverbs in, in wisdom literature. The Urim and Thummim, gemstones of the high priest, you know, I think were likely uh, used in some similar fashion to determine God's will as he actively and you know, directly guided Israel. It was used, in, in, in other words, to determine God's word. But how do I determine God's word now? I open up the book. It's been printed out. Or read the app or whatever. You know. um, the other use of lots, like Solomon mentions the casting of lots as a, as a potential um, mechanism for some wisdom, um, is for settling a score, deciding something impartially. Like you and a friend find a diamond ring in the middle of the woods, and there's no way of knowing who it belonged to for returning it. So how do you decide who keeps it between the two of you? Draw straws. It's impartial so that you're not biased in what you're doing. But it's not, a, it's not guidance for us to know what's right. What does God want me to do here? Um, it's two equal, whatever. Two equal options. Go for it. The Bible does not teach that we get guidance from, lastly, confirmations. Maybe you've heard this. I don't know. Different backgrounds use this language differently. Um, some people look for you know, a confirmation. Um, you, uh, you, know, you hear two different people say the word Russia. I'm, a, I'm called to Russia. Got to go. You know, or you, um, <laughs> Coke will use this, uh, this example. He was driving, uh, driving to some event in December. He had a, just a, a really poor attitude. It had been a season of life, and he didn't want to face Christmas with such a junk attitude. So he's praying in the car. Well, please, you know, take this away. And you know how, like, when you're kind of distracted in prayer, you're driving along and don't even know how you made the turns, but you did or whatever. And so when he kind of, like, came to and is looking, the first thing he saw was a license plate. It said XMAS, the number four, U. Oh, here's this, here's this confirmation, this great sign. But he said, do you know what my Christmas was like that year? It was horrible. It was absolutely terrible. God did not answer my prayer. That sign meant nothing. That was just a license plate. But we read stuff into these things all the time. We love to have that subjective, nebulous thing that we can you know, comfort ourselves with, all this, okay, this is what's happening. The concept of confirmation by multiple witnesses is mentioned in Scripture, but it's only mentioned four, four times in the New Testament. Um, each of these passages refers back to virtually the identical parallel verses in the Old Testament from the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. In each case, in each reference, bold and new, confirmations have a judicial function, either under the law of Israel or in disciplinary matters in the church. No one could be uh, convicted of a crime unless there was adequate testimony against him. There is no evidence in these verses that a convergence of divine hints or confirmations <clears throat> is the way that God communicates his will to us. Christians are not to read meaning into chance circumstances as if these were divine directives. This is superstition. And it's adding to the word of God. We aren't to do. 
Question, though. Aren't we supposed to confirm prophecy in the church? You guys from like an Assembly of God background? Or... Well, no. The church is not told to confirm prophecies. Do we have a confirmation? Yes. I got the same message. Okay. No, we're told to test prophecies. There is an active, thoughtful task. This is an active, thoughtful task of the corporate leadership, judging against God's clear teaching in Scripture, not a simple nod of the head by someone in the uh, congregation who bears witness. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. Test everything and cling to that which is good. That's that's where that passage comes from. So quick recap. The Bible does not teach that guidance comes from feeling led, having a peace about it, opening closed doors, fleeces, or confirmations. Two observations there. <clears throat> First, what the Bible does not teach is sometimes as significant as what it does teach. Should we be teaching as a biblical standard something not found in the Bible? Of course not. Second, we draw misleading and sometimes dangerous conclusions when we do not use biblical terms in biblical ways. And that's hard. I'm from South Carolina, by way of North Carolina, and now in Georgia. I live, eat, sleep, and breathe the Bible Belt. And so Bible lingo is thrown out all the time, all different kinds of ways, with all different kinds of meanings. We have to be careful that when we use biblical language in order to throw a hat tip to its authority that we're using it rightly. And it's not hard to figure out how to do that. Just open up the text. Most of these people have never even opened up the book and said, oh, this is, oh, this is the context. Oh, peace, a peace in my heart, peace, the, the arbiter of peace amongst us. Oh, that's talking about us as a body, not fighting with each other, not peace in a decision to make. Takes five minutes, but, you know, how often do we do it? But, okay, so does God ever give specialized guidance in the Bible? Yes, he does. But uh, close examination of the scripture shows a few characteristics of that. Number one, personalized guidance in the Bible is rare. The cases are exceptional. There's no hint that day-to-day decisions, be they big or small, uh, were made by getting special directions from God for the, the bulk of Christians. God's specialized directives in Acts, for example, are limited to only 14 from the time of Pentecost, uh, and if you would like, Cocoa addresses each one of those in a handout I can give you if you want it. Ask me about it. Um, only one of Paul's three missionary journeys, the first one, was specifically directed by God. In Acts 13, 2, it says, And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And this is probably came as a prophetic word. You can note the preceding verse. Now there uh, were in Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. It was a prophetic word to an apostle in the early church when the canon wasn't yet closed. <laughs> so... Um, Paul's second missionary journey was not specifically commissioned by God in Acts 15, 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. He wanted to go there. He cared about them, had an opportunity, and 
part of his calling as an apostle and a pastor, an elder. So he did. Remember, a handful of incidents do not constitute a model or a framework. You cannot build a biblical model of anything by citing irregular and exceptional events as support. And it is a mistake to take the exception and make a rule out of it. So, number one, personalized gu- uh, guidance in the Bible is rare. Personalized guidance in the Bible is also an intrusion. It's not something that's being sought after. It comes upon you. It shows up. There's no evidence that the apostles were waiting on the Lord, uh, seeking some kind of special guidance in their day-to-day, other than r- when Jesus said, hang on, the Spirit's coming, and some days later, the Pentecost. But after that, all these decisions. <clears throat> uh, instead, when, when that did happen, God surprised them with it. You know, the road to Damascus, Saul was not looking for Jesus. He was looking to kill people that followed after him, but he wasn't looking for a word from the Lord. He showed up. We're not told to seek specialized supernatural guidance from God. If this is the way we're supposed to make decisions, then why doesn't the Bible explicitly teach us this important skill? Okay, so it's rare. It's an intrusion. Personalized guidance in the Bible is supernatural, and therefore it is clear In Acts, uh, the majority, um, five were visions, three were from uh, an angel, four times the Spirit, this is about the 14 he's talking about, times when it it occurred in Acts, Uh, five were were visions, three were from an angel, four times the Spirit spoke, one seems to have been a prophecy, and one was the voice of Jesus himself. So why does this have to be clear? Why does God send supernatural intrusion to make it clear? Well, because God expects it to be obeyed. And you can't obey an unclear command. There's no evidence that these were inner urges or intuitions. Personalized guidance in the Bible generally goes against conventional wisdom. That's why there needs to be some kind of special intrusion. Personalized guidance in the Bible uh, becomes God's moral will, a command that must be obeyed. So in sum, the biblical characteristics of special guidance are that they are rare, intrusive, they're not sought after. They're supernatural in character, and they're clear. Coco brings up a good point. He says, we often don't take our own purported belief in God speaking very seriously. And he gives an example. He was called uh, to speak at a church one time, and everybody got together, and they prayed. And he said, what is it you guys want me to talk about? And he said, well, we prayed about it, and we believe God's saying you should talk about this or this, but you just do whatever you want. And so you question them, obviously. But we do that. We're flippant with it. <clears throat> this is idle Christian lingo. It's assigning the voice of God to our stray thoughts. And do you realize, we're, we're wrapping up here. This is the last bit. Do you realize how serious it is to do that? Think about your own words. Matthew twelve thirty six says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Deuteronomy 12 teaches that a false prophet who attributed his own words to God was to be stoned to death. If his prophecy didn't come true, death. To claim God's authority for your own thoughts or desires is a dangerous and devilish thing. If this is a practice of yours, even an unintentional habit that you've picked up, you need to stop it. It's misleading and dangerous to yourself and to other Christians, and it's a violation of the third commandment. It's taking the Lord's name in vain. So, summary. The Bible does not teach that we get guidance from God through feelings, 
having a peace about it, open and closed doors, circumstantial signs and fleeces, or through confirmations. Special directions are sometimes given, but the biblical pattern is that they're rare, they're intrusive, they're clear, they're supernatural, and they often go against what would be conventional wisdom. So, it's a terrible spot for us to close out because all I've done is taking away everything you've ever known. <laughs> and, uh, and so, how am I going to make decisions for the next week? Um, but, have no fear, fret not. God has given us his word, and next week, we're going to examine it to see how exactly God does call us to make decisions that are in keeping with his desires, his will for us as his children. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. You've been so good to us, and you do keep us. There is not one rogue molecule in all of creation outside of your reach and your grasp and your control. And you're not a tyrant. You are our father. You became our father through the greatest cost. You sent your own son to live in this stinky, rotten world without sin so that we could get his credit and he could take our damnation. Thank you. <laughs> if you spend that much on the gift, you're not going to skimp on the wrapping. And so we can trust that you're going to be with us in the day-to-day -day of our lives. And you're going to show us how it is that we need to live. And we're so thankful that you've given us your holy word and your Holy Spirit indwelling within us to guide us through your word so that we can have wisdom on how to live. Help us now as we go to worship you. May you be pleased from our offering. In Christ's name, amen.